The views expressed on Science for the People are not necessarily the views of this station, its affiliates, sponsors, or advertisers. This week on Science for the People, we're looking to the future of work. Later on, we'll be speaking to a philosopher about why technology isn't the answer to everything. But first, we'll be talking about what might happen to a number of professions and possibly to the concept of professions itself. Stay tuned. Hello and welcome to Science for the People. I'm Desiree Shell, and my guests today are Richard Suskind and Daniel Suskind, authors of The Future of the Professions, How Technology Will Transform the Work of Human Experts. Professor Richard Suskind is President of the Society for Computers and Law, IT Advisor to the Lord Chief Justice of England, and Chair of the Advisory Board of the Oxford Internet Institute. Hello, Richard. Hello there. And Daniel Suskind is a lecturer in economics at Balliol College, Oxford. Previously, he worked for the British government in the Prime Minister's office at 10 Downing Street. Good to have you here, Daniel. Great to be with you. Okay, so after reading your book, I realized that we have done a lot of episodes that have touched on how technology will change our future work lives. Uh, but it's primarily been from a blue-collar angle. Uh, automated fast food service, self-driving cars, caregiving robots, uh, even crowdsourcing reach research technician tasks, that, that sort of thing. But your book takes it a step further in a decidedly white-collar direction. So do you think that people have sort of ignored that technology will dramatically change the nature of the more professional fields? As Richard here, I'm not sure it's that people have ignored uh, the the non-professionals, we might call them these, it's that it's been easier to automate simpler tasks. I think the general view has been that technology has obvious roles to play in manufacturing and administration and other everyday routine tasks, but the work of professionals, so it is thought, is somehow perhaps beyond the reach of current technology or at least very difficult to achieve. And so what we're doing in the book is actually challenging that and saying on the one hand that much the professionals don't doctors, lawyers, accountants, and others do, in fact, actually, when you break it down, has many routine components. And even the non-routine work, it turns out, can actually be undertaken by what we're calling increasingly capable machines. So now you've looked at the number of professions and how they might change in the future. Uh, lawyers, doctors, accountants, architects. So why those ones specifically? So we look, you're right, it's Daniel speaking, at, uh, at eight professions in the book. So lawyers, doctors, teachers, accountants, uh, journalists, architects, consultants. Uh, we look at divinity too and, and the clergy. Right. But the, the, th the thinking in the book isn't, isn't meant to apply to just those eight. Uh, it applies more generally. Uh, it was a, it's it's not it's it's not meant to be read as that the the boundaries of change stop at these eight professions. In fact, some of the most interesting things are happening in other professions as well. So, in in, in for those of uh, who work in finance and think themselves as professionals, the world of finance is changing a great deal as a result of technology. Similarly, in in the work that we were doing on looking at the future of architecture. We spoke to engineers, and so too the work that they're doing is changing a great deal. So it's important. It's it's not a book just about those eight different occupations. It, we're seeing something, I think, far far or far broader than that. Well, what do those professions have in common for the purposes of your book? Our point, and as Richard speaking here, our point is that although professions look rather different, um, they share a certain feature, and it's to do with. Uh, users, recipients of professional service, the patients, the clients, basically on an everyday basis when we need help as human beings on areas beyond our own personal experience, it might be health, it might be law, it might be business, when we have this lack of personal knowledge because we can't know everything, we turn to people, or at least have done in the print-based industrial world, we turn to people who are experts, people who've built up knowledge in these particular areas and they guide us through problems into which we have little insight. And so what the professions that seem to us have in common is it's these bodies of specialists, these experts, who help guide non-experts through areas of which they lack the knowledge, the expertise, the insight, the skills, and the experience. And in a print-based industrial world, as we suggest, 
it was hard to imagine a different way of making this what we call practical expertise available. And the thrust of our book, however, is that we're no longer in a print-based industrial society. We're now in an internet society, and we're finding a whole bundle of new ways of both producing and distributing practical expertise. Mm. And this challenges whether or not we need human professionals to work in the way they did in the 20th century. It's worth also adding, Daniel, speaking here, that those traditional professions, that traditional way in which we've produced and shared practical expertise in the past, that traditional way is creaking. By and large, most people don't have affordable access to the sorts of expertise that's locked up in the heads of the best doctors and accountants and lawyers and so on. Uh, so as well as the book being a discussion of what's feasible, you know, what, what we might be able to do in this internet society, there's also an important part of the book which is saying what we ought to do. You know, the promise of a lot of these technologies is that we can uh, provide far more affordable access to this practical expertise that previously has only been enjoyed by a, a privileged and a, a lucky few. Now, you mentioned the idea that we might not need professions anymore. Uh, and in the book, you talk about the idea of the grand bargain. Can you talk about that a bit? Yes. And this is Richard speaking. The grand bargain essentially is a, an arrangement. It's our term for the arrangement in place that essentially gives a monopoly. It gives exclusive rights to traditional professionals to undertake certain kinds of work. And we're broadly comfortable with some of this. We would only really want surgeons to cut us open. We would only really, really want experienced lawyers to represent us in high courts. We would only really want auditors to be reviewing financial statements and assuring the public and investors that they're robust. But our difficulty is that when you break down much legal and other professional work into its component parts, you find that a great deal of that work does not really require the deep expertise or experience of traditional professionals. And we think in terms of consumer choice and in terms of cost and availability and access, it makes sense for non-professionals to be able to deliver services and often to engage in self-service themselves. And this requires essentially a breaking down of the grand bargain. No longer do we think in the internet society is it appropriate uh, for all the exclusivity that's been traditionally granted to be maintained. Daniel, Daniel here, it's just, it's worth adding to that, that it's not, doesn't mean that we're calling for a free-for-all. Um, but what we're saying, what we're seeing is a whole set of new types of people and new types of institutions solving the sorts of problems that traditionally only professionals have solved. So you know, in the tax, 48 million Americans in 2014 used online tax preparation software rather than traditional tax accountants to help them file their tax returns. Uh, or you know, WebMD, an online collection of health websites, extensive guidance on symptoms and treatments, it has 190 million unique users a month. So that's more unique users than there are visits to all the traditional doctors working in the United States. We're not, we're not saying that these new organizations, these new institutions, these new people who are solving problems that used to only be solved by the professions, uh, that they, that they in some sense are subject to no regulation or no scrutiny, but, but rather we might need a new bargain, a bargain for very different types of ways of solving problems that traditionally only the professions have solved. And to add to that, I think many people uh, suggest that this is worrying, that this is threatening, but that's very much the point of view of the provider, the doctor, the lawyer, the accountant. From the point of view of the recipients of professional service, we think much of this is rather good news. And as Daniel said earlier, that these professions we often say are creaking, we can't afford them, they're inaccessible. And so what we think is that in a world where expertise can be made more easily available at people's fingertips, we have to change the way we regulate and control the professions to enable this liberation of knowledge and expertise. Well, and you, your book details some of the ways in which professions are currently failing. Can you speak a bit about that? Yes, it's, it's Richard here. I think the greatest difficulty here is that for many people, the professions are unaffordable. We see in our travels that people can't afford to pursue legal actions. People can't afford first-rate medical guidance. They can't afford decent business advice. 
And so although we have first-rate professionals around the world, they're an unevenly distributed resource. Also, many of the methods of the professions are rather outmoded. We have technologies that can help us in so many ways, and yet the professions traditionally have resisted the use of technology. We have, in turn, to some extent, a lack of confidence in some of the professions. If they aren't affordable and they don't seem to be sufficiently modernized, then people lose confidence in the professions. <laughs> and at the same time, they seem out of step with the internet society in a world where we turn as our natural first port of call to websites to give us guidance and information and service in almost all spheres, somehow for the professions and the subject matter of the professions not to be involved, again, casts doubt on their relevance and reduces confidence in the service that's delivered. And we say it's, it's time for a change just as so many other sectors, the manufacturing sectors, the production sector, all the, the retail markets have undergone massive change because of technology. Our book looks at the ways in which technology is going to change professional service. And we should say that we see two sorts of changes. One is where the traditional work of the professions is streamlined or optimized, essentially turbocharged through technology. And the other is far more radical, uh, where technologies come along and provide the solutions, the outcomes that customers and clients are wanting, but without necessarily involving traditional professionals, either the same way or indeed sometimes at all. This is Science for the People, and I'm talking to Richard Suskind and Daniel Suskind about their book, The Future of Professions, How Technology Will Transform the Work of Human Experts. Okay, so technology has already changed these professions, correct? We, we, we've already been seeing some patterns? I think that's, it's Daniel speaking. That's absolutely right. You know, in, in the legal world, for example, uh, the best known legal brand in, in, in the United States is said not to be a traditional law firm. It's LegalZoom.com, uh, an online document drafting and, and legal advice platform. Or you know, again, in the legal world, on eBay, every single year, 60 million disputes arise, and those disputes are resolved online without any traditional lawyers using what's called an e-mediation platform. Now, just bear in mind that 60 million disputes, from where I'm from, that's 40 times as many uh, civil claims, uh, 40 times as large a number as the number of civil claims that are filed in the entire English and Welsh justice system. Uh, both of these just examples or cases simply wouldn't have been feasible in that uh, print-based industrial society that we, we were talking about before. Okay, and that's a good example. What other changes do we see? I think we see you know, across the professions, uh, in the most general sense, and again, it's Daniel speaking, different types of people and different types of institutions solving the sorts of problems that traditionally only a particular type of professional has solved. Uh, what's quite interesting, though, is that in a lot of the popular commentary on how technology is affecting work there's a sense that you know one day a professional will turn up at work and find a robot or an algorithm sitting at their desk you know their job will have been entirely displaced by a a, a robot or a machine and actually our this while well, a world in which there are systems and machines that can perform tasks that used to be performed by human beings we certainly see that as one possible uh, feature of the future you know, systems, for example, IBM's Watson that's used uh, to diagnose certain types of cancer and and to help draw up treatment plans for post, uh, for people with post-traumatic stress disorder. There's actually a far more nuanced uh, picture that, that we, we articulate in the book. We call that particular model uh, the machine-generated model. But let me, on the other side of the spectrum, uh, give you the example of the what we call the communities of experience model. Uh, so again, in in the medical setting, uh, patients like me. It's an online community of three hundred and fifty thousand patients, uh, recipients of uh, professional work who come together and share with each other their experience of various, you know, their experience dealing with certain symptoms or with different types of treatment. You know, that's a very, very different way of sharing this practical expertise, um, and it's enabled by technology. So those, those, the the future we set out isn't one in which isn't the 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 the, the commonly, and I think it's, it's an exciting and uh, 
and um, startling vision, the vision of you know, robots displacing people. But, but the vision we set out is more nuanced than that. And, and in fact, we set out six alternative models, six different ways of solving the sorts of problems that traditionally only professionals have solved. So, so one model is the machine-generated model uh, that I that I discussed before, where you, know, you have systems and machines taking on tasks that used to just be done by by human professionals. Uh, then there's this interesting communities of experience model, where you have recipients of professional work sharing with each other uh, their own experience and insight and wisdom. No traditional lawyers or doctors or teachers or accountants involved there. Uh, this is the recipients of professional work using technology uh, to solve problems. But there are others too, the paraprofessional model, for example, where less expert people supported by these increasingly capable systems and machines are able to take on tasks that might have been done by the most expert professionals. Um, and, 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 and there then, are... Then... <laughs> go, go ahead. Is Richard here? There's also what we call the knowledge engineering model. And this actually has origins in the 1980s. This is the idea that you can sit down with human experts, somehow model and understand and then represent as a complex decision tree their decision making processes and make them available online to others. So if you can imagine a huge flowchart that in some way represents the complexities of the diagnostic performance of a lawyer or a doctor or perhaps of an accountant reduced to this map or pathway through which a non-expert can navigate. Then we've got what we call the, the embedded knowledge model, where we believe that increasingly the expertise, you'll remember we call this the practical expertise of human beings, won't be essentially gained access to by speaking to a human being, but it'll be embedded in the everyday working practices and processes of businesses and individuals. We often draw a comparison here to the game of solitaire, which we play electronically. Uh, when you play it electronically and you try to put a red five under a red six, the system rejects that. Whereas if you play with playing cards, you can do that. So electronically, we say the rules are embedded in the system. And what you'll find is rules of tax, rules of uh, law, and indeed even embedded in our own bodies will be knowledge and expertise. We'll move to this embedded knowledge model. And finally, there's the, the machine-generated model. And this is... Uh, much of our books really to do with artificial intelligence. And we identify various ways in which machines can produce knowledge and expertise and insights, uh, often to a higher standard than human beings, and also make that available, distribute that far more widely. So there are the six different models. And what we say from the point of view of recipients of services is going to offer a far richer range of options. That means better medical service, better legal service, better business service, better architectural service, better education. And these are powerful, important social benefits. And from the point of view of the providers, and this is the challenge, professionals have to think, if I move away from being a consultative traditional advisor, which of these alternative models am I going to settle upon for some of my career? And I think that's one of the issues. It's, it's obvious that for people accessing those kind of services that, that there are some definite advantages. But, uh, are there advantages for practitioners themselves? Well, I think if you're, and this is Richard speaking, I think if you're, um, an entrepreneurial, uh, open-minded, innovative practitioner, this is a wonderful time to be practicing. It's an opportunity to improve access to justice, to improve access to health, to improve education. And frankly, we meet large numbers of people who are enthused by the ways in which they can embrace technology and develop new forms of service. If, in contrast, you're more conservative, more cautious, maybe creeping towards retirement, all of this can look terribly threatening. And so we accept that the reaction to our recommendations uh, is not always uniformly positive, but we do stress again that the professions exist to support the needs of the community. If we can find better ways of meeting these needs, then it seems to us incumbent in the professions to adapt rather than to say we only want to work the way that we were taught 30 years ago, and more than that, we want others to be regulated out of the arena. And as Daniel speaking here, I mean, that has to be the right way of thinking about it by thinking from the standpoint of the consumer rather than from the standpoint of the producer. You know, it's, it can't be the, 
the purpose of the law to provide a living for lawyers or the, you know, the purpose of ill health to provide a living for traditional doctors or the purpose of illiteracy or innumeracy to provide a living for traditional teachers. Uh, if we find new and better ways to improve access to justice, to improve our healthcare system, to improve our education systems, ways in which don't draw on the skills and capabilities of traditional professionals, well, surely we should embrace them from the standpoint of the consumer uh, rather than rather than reject them. Uh, and Richard here, this really leads to the emergence of a new class of professionals in the 2020s. Many people talk about unemployment uh, because of what we say. No, we say it's redeployment. We say that a whole new set of skills, at least in the 20s, will need to be developed, not to automate the traditional way that professionals have worked, but we need systems designers. We need people called empathizers. We need people called moderators, process analysts, a whole bundle of new roles with which many listeners won't be familiar and that's fine and that indeed is the point that the people who will be sorting out the problems for which the traditional professionals used to be the solution won't actually look much like traditional professionals you're listening to science for the people and i'm talking to the authors of the future of professions richard and daniel suskind Okay, now you are already arguing against the arguments, <laughs> against uh, technological encroachment, so let's just continue on with that. Um, the objections against the changing of professions, let's talk about some of those. Uh, from your book itself, uh, some people would argue that the changes will erode trust in the professions. And that may well be right, but that's eroding trust in the traditional professions. What we're suggesting is that once one embraces one or more of the six alternative ways of making expertise available, then the notion of trust, which we value deeply, but it becomes less relevant on the new models. We have to understand and ask the question, really, why do we need trust? Uh, to what problem is trust the solution? What lack of confidence is it that we can perhaps in some way support or meet in another way. We have to think imaginatively uh, about the way in which new services are delivered without necessarily importing old concepts. So people say things like, we need trust, we need personal face-to-face -face interaction, we need human creativity, we need empathy. And we say again, these are vital for the old way of delivering services. But if you are consulting a system online, much as we'll naturally use so many well-known uh, well online brands, one might not look for the utmost duty of good faith that we expect of our human professionals under the, under the law. Uh, we might not look for that level of confidence. We might be looking for reliability rather than this far deeper trust. Because after all, when people visit professions or the professions, they generally have serious problems to which they want a solution. If that solution could be delivered in new ways without the need for the old accompanying phenomena, trust, empathy, interpersonal contact, creativity, and the service is reliable and less costly and more convenient, then we feel that users will embrace them. Well, when you mentioned personal interaction, and I can think of some issues where you definitely want to speak to another human to get things resolved. And I think we, we see that with call centers all the time. Well, there may be some areas, and we're not saying every area of the professions can be replaced. But tax advisors are a good example, if they will forgive me. But most people who use online tax services are not saying what they really miss is the interaction <laughs> with the tax advisor. True. Um, the purpose of consulting a tax advisor is not to socialize, it's to get the work done. And it's true in many other areas as well. And what we also say is we shouldn't be too precious, for example, about empathy. People say, well, of course, the importance of going to a doctor is the empathy one receives. But very often, is it not true that the deeply technical, outstanding specialists themselves actually are not wonderful empathizers? How often do we hear that people's extremely skilled doctors and lawyers actually lack interpersonal communication skills? Mm -hmm. So we shouldn't be expecting more of our systems than right. we're actually getting for our human beings. And that's a really, that's a really kind of important point. I'd rather have an unempathetic doctor who makes the right diagnosis than an empathetic doctor who, you know, makes me feel wonderful and comfortable and I feel like he understands my problems, but ultimately makes the wrong diagnosis and, and issues me the wrong prescription. Um, we have to remember that 
what we what we go to professionals for is uh, a solution to these these particularly important problems. Uh, and as as my dad has been saying, we have to be careful not to not to cling to the old ways in which we've solved those problems. If there are new ways to solve those problems uh, that 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 do it more efficiently, more effectively, and and perhaps more affordably. Um, it's it's also met- just interest. It's also just interesting the just to you know, challenge the idea that um, necessarily uh, we have to abandon things like empathy uh, or, the, or that they might just take a different form or a different shape in the future. Just a quick example. One of my favorite stories is of Joseph Weizenbaum, the, one of the fathers of artificial intelligence, who, who built a system uh, a few decades ago called ELISA. And this system, ELISA, was... Uh, intended to replicate, and it was designed as a bit of a joke, but intended to replicate the interaction you might have with a, with a psychotherapist. So you'd, uh, it would ask you the question, how are you feeling today? You'd respond, you know, I'm feeling well. And it would ask again, are you sure you're really feeling well? And so on. And you'd have this back and forth with this system, Eliza. And so Joseph, Joseph Weizenbaum invented this system, as I said, partly as, as a bit of a joke and invited his assistant in to, to test it. And what was so interesting was that within a few questions between Eliza and the assistant, the assistant turned to Joseph Weizenbaum and said, can you leave the room? Um, and, you know, it's, it, it, and, and when you think about it, there, there's many reasons why that's understandable. Uh, she may have felt more comfortable sharing, uh, her difficult problems with an inanimate system, or she may have been building a different type of empathetic relationship with uh, with the system than with the human being. I mean, this this particular thing troubled Joseph Weizenbaum a great deal, and he spent quite a lot of the rest of his career trying to grapple with what what he had witnessed. But it just challenges the idea that necessarily, when we do things differently, uh, it it um, it requires abandoning all of the traditional ways in which we've we've solved these problems. Now, something that you sort of touched on earlier, uh, the good work objection that these jobs will re- be replaced by other jobs. But I guess, uh, you know, as usual, when we talk about technological displacement, uh, of course, new support jobs will develop. But whether those jobs will be as intellectually interesting as the current positions and whether they'll provide the same amount of financial compensation is in question. Well, there's certainly, and of course, that uh, new roles may well emerge. The question we ask in the book is whether or not these new roles will be better suited to human beings than machines. And it's not obvious uh, that they will be. And this is why we think this new era of, of technology, where not just manual skills, but also cognitive skills are taking on by machines, is not at all obvious to us that the, the new roles that you mentioned that will inevitably arise will be snapped up for all time by human beings. Nor is it obvious to us that these new roles are less exciting. I think it's true to say that what you said there would actually find some uh, resonance with professionals uh, who, who tend to think that the way they have always worked is, is likely to be the most stimulating way. But I give an example of knowledge engineering that I mentioned earlier. Of all the work I've done in the legal profession, uh, over the last 35 years, the most stimulating piece of work I ever did was building in the 1980s an expert system, uh, an early form of AI system that solved legal problems. And I was the knowledge engineer. I sat down with an expert. I mined the jewels from his head. I represented his deep expertise in a computer system. And we developed a system that could solve legal problems in 10 minutes rather than two hours. But the intellectual challenge of sitting with that expert, of recasting their knowledge as a massive uh, decision tree of over two million paths, that was phenomenal fun. Whereas if you said to most lawyers or doctors or accountants, you might be a knowledge engineer within a few years, the intuition would be, well, that's not something I'd want to do. And, and so I think r- without undue reflection, People tend to assume these new jobs will be less stimulating. Our experience, at least to some extent, has been to the contrary. So what about those young folks who are in school right now and they're looking at the future of their sort of chosen profession and they're currently thinking, am I going to be necessary by the time I finish the program? 
I think one of the difficulties, and this is Richard speaking uh, as a as someone who's been teaching uh, lawyers uh, or aspiring lawyers for many years, um, one of the difficulties is that people are often inspired to take on a profession on the basis of a historical conception of that profession, so or, or indeed one promoted by our literature or by our, our television. So lots of law students, understandably, have been inspired by John Grisham or by Rumpel of the Bailey or by, or by Suits or by The Good Wife, all of which I love, incidentally. But that's 20th century lawyering. And I think if one's going into the legal profession now as a law student expecting to be conducting law in the way that these individuals, these fictional individuals do, uh, then one's going to be disappointed. Uh, 21st century law is going to look very different. And in all honesty, none of us knows precisely what it will look like. But uh, we put it rather differently. We believe that the current students in the professions and those school children coming into university and into professional schools, they are privileged because they'll be joining a profession and it's given only to people every couple of hundred years to do this. They'll be joining a profession that they can substantially change. Over the next 20 years, we'll be improving access to justice, to health, to education, to business advice. We'll be changing the way that society shares expertise. And so I say the promise for the young aspiring lawyer and doctor is to be involved in this change, to be one of the architect architects of the change, to be excited. So don't go into law because you want to be rumple. Go into law because you want to improve access to justice in society. Don't go into medicine. Uh, because you uh, are inspired by your current primary health care provider, no matter how impressive they are. But go into medicine because we're about to be developing ways of making medical experience available to 7 billion people and more across the globe. There's never been a more exciting time to be going into uh, work into those areas uh, that will be solving the problems historically with the problems of traditional professionals. Well, one of the things that I really liked about this book is that it's fairly objective, uh, in that you're not really promoting much of anything. Uh, there, oh, that's there are, very kind. There, there are <laughs> I'm no, not sure that's true. <laughs> well, I wouldn't say there's, let's say, there's no specific actions or policies that you're promoting beyond just asking us to all think about this, correct? In a way, but I think we, I think that is too generous. Actually, we think our, our, our motive is benign. Uh, the thing that excites us most is liberating the expertise that used to be held within the monopolies that are in the professions and held within the heads of, of, of professionals. Uh, and what we're saying and what we deeply want is greatly improved service to patients, to clients, to students, uh, enabled through this emerging technology. And we're really putting down a challenge, is perhaps the best way of seeing it, to the traditional professions and asking in the internet society whether or not this is the best we can do in terms of how we produce and distribute expertise. So I wouldn't want it to be thought we're complacent or indifferent. Uh, it, it's not a value-free book. Uh, the more we research, the more we looked into it, we, we think we're missing a trick in our world not to be exploring and exploiting these technologies. Did you want to add anything, Daniel? I think I think that's right. Um, I think very often conversations about the future of work focus on what it means for for producers and for traditional providers, and uh, it really is a, a, an important part of our book to try and refocus that conversation on what this means for consumers. Uh, and there, the optimism that my dad just described means that the book is is a bit of a call to action. It's it's it, it is saying that. We ought to embrace these new technologies that offer us ways to solve the sorts of problems that traditionally only professionals have solved and to do it in ways that will make that practical expertise more affordable and, and more accessible. And it's very interesting that professions, when they hear our broad thesis, often react in a very similar way. They strongly agree uh, with the changes we propose for all professionals other than their own. And they're often just... <laughs> They'll do special pleading. Well, I can see that works in medicine and law. However, we're very different in the world of accountancy, as the case may be. And we want to argue against that special pleading. Uh, it, it seems to us, uh, as we were saying earlier, the professions exist to help us access knowledge and expertise. Um, and no professions really are going to be exempt or immune from these changes. I just realized that the fact that I found your book objective probably says more about me than it does about you. 
<laughs> so thank you so much, Richard and Daniel, for being here. It was a fantastic book. Many thanks. Right. Thank you very much. That's very kind. And we've linked to the future of professions on our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. Next up is Nicholas Agar, the author of The Skeptical Optimist. And we'll be right back with that after this. Science for the People is a weekly radio show and podcast that explores everyday life from a scientific perspective. We are a member of the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on science and critical thinking. To find out where Science for the People airs near you, or to listen to past episodes, check out our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to support us at Patreon, to connect with us on Facebook and Twitter, and to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. And now, back to the show. Welcome back to Science for the People. I'm Desiree Shell, and I'm here with Nicholas Agar, a New Zealand philosopher based at Victoria University of Wellington. His research has focused on the human implications of new technologies. He's published two books on the philosophical debate over human enhancement, and he's here today to talk about his newest book, The Skeptical Optimist, Why Technology Isn't the Answer to Everything. Good to have you here, Nick. It's great to be here. Now, can you start out by explaining the title of the book? What's a skeptical optimist when we're talking about technology? Well, I guess when you, you know, when you have a debate, you often want to sort of place people in a neat little position. So in respect of technology, it's, you know, are you against it or are you in favor of it? And I suppose I wanted to sort of convey a more complex message. So I guess my book is a picture, presents a picture in which technology does lots of fantastic things, but I've got a sort of a model of how it provides those fantastic things, how it benefits people that leads to skepticism about some of the claims about it. So it's kind of like, yes, we should do it, we should be optimistic, but we should temper that optimism with some skepticism. So not be a radical optimist. Now, you mentioned this in the book, radical optimists being the folks that are, I I guess, unrealistically biased in favor of new technology? Yeah, it's often sort of sometimes technological solutions or technological um, progress is presented as kind of like, an excuse for not thinking. Um, you know, I mean, climate change seems like a big problem, but, I mean, every problem has a potential technological fix. And let's find that ASAP, and surely we'll soon enough find it. We, you know, we'll be, I don't know, putting those little carbon dioxide-eating nanobots up into the atmosphere, and then we won't have to worry. So almost any problem, there's sort of like this idea that, you know, for any problem, poverty, climate change, there's a technological solution, a potential technological solution that makes it go away. And I guess that's a sort of, I view that as a dangerous, lazy kind of way to think about these things. So do you think that people are too dependent on the idea that technology will solve all of our problems? So I guess I would say that it's, it's sloppy thinking. That uh, I mean, we, we, we all crave. So people present problems and they're presented as difficult problems. And then if a sort of a, a technologist magician comes along and says, don't worry too much, there's a fix for that, and look at all these past difficult problems that we solved, seemed insoluble at the time, and we fixed them. Well, climate change and poverty are just problems in that category. If one was to take the radical optimist position, that would be basically that uh, technological progress increases everyone's well-being, which is a basically a net positive and therefore full steam ahead. And you yeah. disagree with that? I guess I do. I mean, I guess it's too much optimism. And I suppose the the way I've chosen to engage with it is just by, you know, I think philosophy is the best subject when it joins a debate in a way that kind of expands its focus. So what I thought I would try to do is basically introduce some of the stuff on well, human well-being. I mean, there's a real booming science of well-being and happiness right now. So what does that research tell us about, what would that tell us about technology, the way technology affects our happiness and our well-being? So I guess there's sort of a kind of a trap that we tend to fall into when we think about technological progress. So it's all, you know, when people tell you, talk to you about the, the future of the internet or, I don't know, the future of driving, 
it's very easy to imagine fantastic, wonderful technologies, you know. I don't know. How, how cool would it be to have a flying car? How cool would it be to take your holidays on, I don't know, one of, the, one of the nice moons of Jupiter as opposed to one of the nasty ones? I mean, these all seem very cool, and I guess they are. There are possible avenues of technological progress that will bring them, and when we think about them, they say it's like sort of watching Star Trek and imagining yourself you know, on the bridge of the Starship Enterprise. It's fantastic. But that overestimates, leads us to overestimate the effects of technological progress and, on well-being. And I guess we can see that most clearly when we look back into the past. So, I mean, I guess if you were to tell, well, look, we're going to return you, you know, we're going to take all your modern technologies away, you know, technologies that you've become quite dependent on, and we're going we're gonna to give you the kinds of technologies that, say, people would have had 2,000 years ago. How would you feel? I mean, it seems horrible, I mean, uh, to imagine what it would have been like to live in ancient Rome, sort of an ancient world city with a million people in it. I mean, there would be just many aspects of that existence that we would never, we would hate. You know, all of the sort of human feces all over the streets and things like that. But it almost certainly, that's not the way they reacted to it. So I sort of conjecture on the basis of sort of, I guess that's a reasonable conjecture, that there's a mechanism that basically I call hedonic normalization, which basically, I don't know, permits us to respond to varying environments. If you're an Inuit and you grow up in the Arctic, your hedonic normalization permits you to respond to that and treat it as normal and treat Arctic conditions as basically baselines. So you judge, it's a baseline against which you judge improvements and worsenings. And I think that the same mechanism applies to technology. So ancient Rome wasn't full of you know, astoundingly depressed people because they didn't have the internet. I mean, they were probably, I guess in many, they suffered injustices that we didn't suffer. Some of the, lots of them were slaves, which is miserable at any time, but they weren't probably miserable because of their rubbishy technologies. And equally, people in the distant future won't be ecstatically happy. You know, when in Star Trek episodes, they don't walk into the, tele the teleporter room and go woohoo you mean we, i press this button and i go down to that sort of the planet surface instantly that's amazing it's just normal for them well so and I, this is the idea that i find so interesting that that new technology uh and I, I guess specifically the benefits that we receive from it uh either psychologically or physically uh they become normalized over time regardless of what kind of technology it is they do yeah i mean and that's that's as it should be if we didn't sort of adapt to that, if our psychology wasn't built to respond to that, I mean, as soon as the first of us, I don't know, as soon as you emigrate to the Arctic, you're dead. So sort of we respond over time. If you're born into those conditions, if you're born into an environment with, I don't know, with chariots and, you know, all of your food is best described as gruel, that's normal. But if you And if you're, you're born into... Star Trek world of the 23rd, 23rd century. That's normal too. Well, I guess then the question is, uh, but doesn't technology, uh, technological progress, it doesn't it make us happier? Oh, I, I think it does, but I think it does in a different way. So I guess the, there's a paradox that I think is sort of, um, is, becomes apparent when you think about how it does. So, for me now, I mean, you know, I was, I was a late adopter of the iPhone because I was a sort of a skeptic about it. And as soon as I got it, it, I was sort of, it seemed to me like a technology that was analogous to magic. It was quite astounding. I mean, I, I was able to do all of these things that I'd heard about, but I hadn't really fully taken into account. So for individuals, I mean, it does. I mean, I guess, so look, I have diabetes. I mean, if someone comes along and says that they've cured diabetes, how happy will that make me? Very happy. So the, it brings manifest sort of improvements to individuals, but intergenerationally, the effect is much, much more muted. So it's kind of a funny process whereby, I mean, the paradox is that 
every time you introduce a new big technology and people have access to it, it makes everyone who receives it happier, well, with some exceptions, but as a general trend. But that effect is basically muted by an inter intergenerational effect, which sort of cancels it. And that's, you know, hedonic normalization. You know, the people in Star Trek land, uh, they don't worry about di diabetes because it's a history, it's a disease from ancient history. Well, now, when we're talking about uh, sort of the dangers of, of being a radical optimist and assuming that technology is going to solve everything, uh, there's also the issue of us not being able to look into the future, so we can't see all the potential downsides to new technology. So what kinds of potential downsides are we talking about? What might well, I think um, <clears throat> yeah, that's very difficult to say because, I mean, I guess we're, in respect of many of the technologies that we're introducing now, I mean, maybe we're uh, sort of, we're roughly sort of where we were at the, begin in, at the beginning of the Industrial Revolution in respect of climate change. You know, I mean, climate, who would have thought that basically putting a whole lot of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere would have a warming effect? I mean, if you're way back at the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, sort of, you know, just starting out with this technology that will pump vast volumes of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. I mean, it, no, you couldn't possibly explain it. I mean, it's a, it's a problem that comes from nowhere, out of the blue. So I guess I, I, my view is that, well, is there a way to advance that says, yes, technologies do make us all happier, but they bring unexpected... I mean, is there a way to get insurance against some of these the messes that they have over time made? This is Science for the People, and I'm talking to Nicholas Agar, author of The Skeptical Optimist, Why Technology Isn't the Answer to Everything. Okay, now, before we t start talking about um, some of the solutions that you propose, because uh, mm -hmm. I really want to talk about those, uh, there is one section in your book that I want to dig into, um, because I'm I'm fascinated by it, and whenever we're, we're talking about sort of futurism uh, and some of the things that might happen due to technology, um, we are told that technology will basically all but solve poverty. And your position is uh, the opposite, <laughs> that it won't solve poverty. Um, but that's actually the exact angle that many futurists and, and assorted tech boosters promote. Well, it makes it all so easy, isn't it? If you turn poverty into a technological problem, then it's almost a problem that you solve without even trying to. So sort of precisely, I mean, it's, it's like a, a version of, you know, economic trickle-down, <clears throat> where the poor are supposed to get richer as the rich get richer, because presumably the rich get richer and then hire maids. Um, you know, the money is supposed to trickle down. And I suppose a solution for poverty that says, well, look, we want these technologies. We want, you know, I don't know, all these communication technologies, all these internet-related technologies. And just as a byproduct, they will help poor people. You know, poor people with cell phones can sell their produce at markets that they never could before. It makes poverty seem like a the kind of problem that you can really solve just accidentally, and it seems to me that that vastly understates the magnitude of the problem. Well, so why why won't new technology solve poverty then, in your opinion? Well, I, I suspect that they won't solve problems. So I guess I I approach this problem by trying to put put things put a problem like poverty into context and to understand what kind of problem it is. And I guess the most straightforward way to think about it is it's just, who are the poor people? Well, they're the people who've got less stuff. You know, if you don't have a car, well, that's an indicator that you could be poor. You don't have a, you don't have a telephone, that could be an, an indicator that you're not. You, you solve the problem of poverty by creating more stuff. And that's kind of the radical optimist solution, that basically you give people the capacity to manufacture the stuff that they make, or you make us better at manufacturing stuff, then they have the stuff. But it seems to me that poverty is more a problem about the way people relate to each other, the connections between people. So, I mean, here's, here's, a, here's a conjecture. So my books are full of a few of, of sort of conjectures that I think 
you know, I think I, I present as plausible, but they're empirical conjectures. They could turn out to be wrong. So I guess two claims that the poorest people today experience great misery. Um, people in our past, um, you know, who basically lived with much, much less were materially significantly poorer than the poorest people together. Sorry, the poorest people today don't experience that misery. Now, I guess if you think that the problem is just stuff and you think that people in Sierra Leone have more stuff than people um, in, you know, in, in you know, the Pleistocene and in, in human evolutionary history typically had, I mean, to live in the Pleistocene was to live at a time where you were basically one failed hunt away from starvation. Um, I mean, I guess the reason I think that people weren't miserable then is that if you think that our capacity for well-being evolved for those circumstances, then it must have been the case that people, I'm not saying it wasn't, you know, I wouldn't want to go back in time and live in the Pleistocene, um, but people in those circumstances must have been capable of having lives that seemed good to them and were meaningful. So I, I guess that sort of way of thinking about it suggests that it's, it's not that, if you consider the problem in isolation, you don't solve a problem by giving the poor people more stuff. You've got to do something about the way the poorest people today relate to those of, of us who've got not only stuff, but far too much stuff. So it's the gaps that matter more than the actual amount of stuff that you happen to have access to. And that's, that's actually an interesting point because you wrote that that gap is actually increasing. And so, in fact, new technology and technological pro uh, progress might actually make that gap larger and therefore worse. Yeah, well, I think so. I mean, it's like the, the objection to um, economic trickle-down. I mean, I guess it is the case that if you become fabulously rich, then you probably do acquire the need and the capacity to pay for more maids. But if you think that, and I, I'm very sympathetic to analyses of poverty that suggest that it is the gaps, that societies in which the gap between the wealthiest and the poorest is very large are sickest societies in many respects. But any sort of measure that, that makes that gap wider stands to make the problem more severe. So I guess it's sort of, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, it's sort of in a way this, I'm not into a simplistic solution that says throw away technology. I mean, we've got to use technology. I mean, technological new inventions that cure diseases. I mean, a, a new drug for malaria would be fantastic. But it suggests that there's something beyond that drug that we've got to do, rather than sort of saying, oh, look, we tried to do something that we want, and look, accidentally, we invented this new drug for malaria. Fantastic. We got it for free. So it's something about the way we relate to the poorest people. So I suppose when looking at new technologies, uh, maintaining an awareness that it's probably got not going to make you as happy as you think, and also there could be um, some significant detriments to this choice of action that you haven't expected. Yeah, I mean, it's more just, I mean, yeah, not getting carried away. It's kind of like, I mean, we live in a pluralistic society and we have, there are lots of things that we're trying to do. And you know, we've got to basically be able to see how each of the things that we do contributes to the problems that we have. And when you think, ah, oh, this is it, I know, it's just technology, yeah, better technologies, so some new iteration on the internet, that's the solution. When you exclude, when, it, when that's, I mean, they could be great, but when you view them in kind of an exclusionary way, and you say, well, look, but that's, that's the sole answer, that's all we need to do then you're likely to make poorer decisions. Well, you know, speaking of decisions, how how can we determine without the benefit of hindsight which technologies uh, will be positive and and which will be unexpectedly negative or at least have negative side effects? Well, well I guess I'd like to see. Here's what I'd like to see. I've got a sort of, I do make a, having sort of suggested that we tend to, exaggerate the benefits that come from technological progress and new technologies. I mean, I do think that new technologies, I mean, so there's a, the model that I have in the book of how technologies make us happier says, suggests that they do. So they're certainly worth pursuing. Um, 
But I guess we've got to appreciate that anything, anytime we introduce new big technologies, they bring risks. And it's kind of if you just, any society that focuses, say, exclusively on the potential benefits of GMOs or nuclear power stations, that these, these technologies can bring huge benefits. But if you get overly focused on those benefits, you might be inclined to miss the potential dangers. I mean, anytime, I mean, I'm not an advocate of the precautionary principle that sort of says, I don't know, insofar as possible, don't do anything. Definitely do things, but try to do things in a way that gives you some, some insurance against things really, really messing up. Um, so I, I guess my view about the way we should collectively, I mean, you know, as a global community, advance technolo te technologically is to say, well, let's kind of not put all of our eggs in one basket. It's kind of good that there are people out there, communities out there, who are naturally cautious about GMOs. I mean, there's too much, I think, today in respect of, you know, debates about nuclear power and debates about genetically modified organisms. There's sort of too much of a kind of science, the institution of science is clobbering machine. You know, these are, you recognize an objection as sort of unscientific, and then you clobber it. Whereas I think sometimes it's actually just sort of a, I don't know, there may be complex reasons why a group of people choose to reject a certain technology. And I guess that's sort of a, if we can advance in that kind of way, we've got insurance against mess-ups. I mean, insurance against a, a problem. I mean, you know, I personally would be happy to eat food with genetically modified organisms in it. I'm not scared. But, I mean, it's a major change. And when I think about, you know, how we as a globe commit to that, I would much rather live in a world in which some societies rejected that approach, pursued other options, and that those other options were kind of, I don't know, like insurance against a real failure. When we all commit to the same, you know, the same way forward, we leave ourselves kind of dangerously exposed to an unexpected mess, just in the same kind of way. You know, we, we couldn't have bet, we couldn't possibly have guessed, you know, back in the, seven, the 1800s, who could have guessed about climate change? I mean, that's, there was an eventuality that makes no sense given the science of those times. There's definitely, I'm, I'm going to personally put an onus on the optimism in, in skeptical optimist. Yeah. Well, I don't, but I, but don't you think, I mean, how else can we? We've got so many problems. And you could just say, I mean, you know, like all this gun violence in America, you could say, well, what's the point in even trying? I mean, just going to end up with more guns. I mean, so you can always take that approach, the pessimistic approach. It, I mean, you, you should always put your money on the pessimistic approach. I'm prepared to put money on, despite the last massacre, no change in American laws about sort of about gun ownership, but it seems to me that it's worth. Don't you think it's it's worth being an optimist, especially when you're advancing an ideal that you think people could do? Oh, you are preaching to the choir, sir. <laughs> you you are lovely. Thank you so much for being here today. Okay, well, thank you. I enjoyed it. And that was Nicholas Agar, author of The Skeptical Optimist, and we've linked to him on our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. Science for the People is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. Helen Quivelon is our publishing liaison. We get research help from Josh Witten. Coordination and additional behind-the-scenes support comes from the Enthusiastic Skeptic Network team. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. Science for the People is listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount. In return, we regularly post special patron-only extra content and after-show casual conversations with guests. This show is created in partnership with the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on the intersection of science, popular culture, politics, and social justice. You can find out more about Skeptic at skeptic.org. The show is hosted by Rochelle Saunders and me, Desiree Schell. <laughs>